I assume you came hungry, both for the word and for the Asian feast. Well, we are looking at the uh, end of the second chapter of Galatians. And we noted that in this particular two chapters, that um, Paul was bearing forth a defense both of the gospel and of his apostleship. The attack among the uh, uh, Judaizers was, of course, the gospel first. The, they wished to add something to the gospel principally, of course, uh, circumcision in order to be justified. But later on, they also added the aspect of the full Mosaic law placed upon the Gentiles. In other words, the full Mosaic law wasn't just simply to justify them, but it was for their sanctified living. It was required for their life a sanctified life. And we're going to look at a little bit of the sanctified life here in this closing portion of the, uh, of the second chapter. And so as I said, Paul stands up and he says, look, my conversion is, uh, is different than any other conversion. It was directly through the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no interface of man. There was no word from man. I met the Lord directly and was saved, converted. And he said, the same is true with my message. I didn't receive the gospel by way of Peter or John or any other apostle. I received the, the message of the gospel directly from the Lord. And then finally, his evidence of his uh, uh, apostleship said that that apostleship was confirmed by the fact that when he did meet with John and Peter and others, that they gave him the right hand of fellowship, acknowledging that the message that they were giving, learned from Christ, was identical to the message that he was giving. The only area of change was is that uh, Paul's ministry was among the Gentiles, whereas Peter's ministry was principally among the Jews. Now, it's kind of a turnaround, isn't it? Is that the way you would have done it? You have Peter, you have Paul, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, well-versed, exceedingly well-versed in the law. He knew also the very makeup of uh, the system among the Pharisees, their mindset, their objections, the purposes. And yet God says, well, all right, Three years in the back deserts of Arabia, you'll come back and you'll work among the Gentiles. 
He picks up Peter, a fisherman, and he puts him in among these theologians, these wolves, as if it were, to fend off the Jews of that time. Pretty, pretty odd, wouldn't you say? Well, really isn't, is it? God doesn't deal with our strength in the flesh for his purposes. He doesn't generally take a, a used car salesman and make him an evangelist, particularly if he's a slick used car salesman, because he th he'll think that he's doing it in his own power. Do you notice that? You know that when, when I was a kid, I'd hate to bring myself into the picture here, but I am. Uh, when I was a kid, I was deathly afraid of doing what I'm doing right now. I mean, just going up for a reward, for a, a medallion, for athletics or something, I would just be in fear. I would be awake all night long before, I, uh, uh, before the event of just not even saying anything, just going up. See, God uses our weaknesses for his glory. Gideon, thou mighty man of God. Gideon is out there, what is he doing? Threshing uh, wheat. He's hiding in a wine press so that he's not seen by the enemy. Thou mighty man of God. Now, I, want, I imagine what he did when he looked, kind of looked around and said, what? Who? Me? Right? And what did God do with him? He dwindled down. He told him, go, go and get me an army. And he dwindled that army down to 300 people, 300 swordsmen. There weren't even really swordsmen, were they? He says, because I'm going to show my strength through your weakness. And that's what God does. And so we have this picture here now of Paul going in among the Gentiles. Now in the second chapter, the, where we began at verse 11, we see the conflict that he had between uh, himself and, and Peter regarding the gospel, right? The truth of the gospel. Now, in the latter part, where we stopped, is basically a, he's summarizing what he's presented in, the, in these two chapters. And he's putting it all together for us. And so we'll just take a little time to look at that, what, uh, <clears throat> what he feels are the important elements in the presentation here that uh, uh, he gave us in these two chapters. And I'll just begin reading. Well, the conclusion actually starts with verse 17, but let me read verse 16 because I think it's meaningful. Verse 16 of chapter 2 of Galatians. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have, have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Now, of course, this is Paul speaking. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, 
Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Again, verse 16, to reiterate that, it's an important proposition that is given here. The issue of justification, justification by faith, by virtue of the being made right before God as the judge, having the righteousness of God declared to be ours. And on that basis, he justifies that. But the Jews, the Judaizers, what did they want to do? They wanted to present the law as a means of justification. Now, verse 17 and 18, a little hard to understand. I, I like what uh, Schofield has to say. Let me read what, what he, how he um, paraphrases verse 17 and 18. If we Jews, in seeing to be justified by faith in Christ, take our place as mere sinners like the Gentiles, is it therefore Christ who makes us sinners? By no means. It is by putting ourselves again under law after seeking justification through Christ that we act as if we were still unjustified sinners seeking to become righteous through law works. Remember again, the, the whole issue was that that Peter separated him from the Gentiles because these uh, Judaizers came in and he was fearful that the message would go back to Jerusalem uh, that he's not in fact uh, proclaiming the association of law with the gospel. And so he was hoping, I think, that well, you know, I'll just kind of skate aside here. I don't believe that, but I'll let it go till they leave. Then I'll be back in fellowship with the, with the Gentiles. Well, it really doesn't work that way, does it? And so Paul deals on this issue of the truth of the gospel, and he deals with the fact that, look, you claimed as Jews you claimed to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And now, by your actions, what are you saying? It is by putting ourselves again under law after seeking justification through Christ that we act as, we were, as if we were still unjustified sinners seeking to become righteous through the law. What is the purpose of the law? Well, the purpose of the law is 
to bring us to Christ. The law bears condemnation. It is a, a message of condemnation. The law prohibits and requires. Don't do and do, but it gives you no power to live it. And then it bears punishment for it. Penal act against it if you don't obey it. There is the sign, 70 miles an hour, that's the speed limit. You do 71 miles an hour, by law, you've broken that law, and there is payment for that everywhere except California, it seems, okay? I have young people that come up uh, every so often for a little discipleship up, up in uh, Oregon, and I warn them two things. One is the speed limit at max is 65, and two, it's not California. If you do four miles more, that's still breaking the law, right? And I don't ask them whether they do that. I'm just letting them know. If you go four miles faster than, uh, than the speed limit, they're going to ticket you. Okay, so just be forewarned. That's the, there is no giving, legitimately, the giving in the law. The law demands that the infraction against that law, that there be a payment made, a penal payment made. That's the law. What is grace? Well, graces may have exactly the same thing, not law, but commandments. There are commandments, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a pretty good commandment. And so there are commandments, but what, under grace, the commandment is given, the power to live it is given, and there's no penal consequence to it. Why? Because the Lord Jesus took all of the penal consequences of our wrongdoing, didn't he? And so we have these aspects of law. Law is, has, give, has no give whatsoever. In fact, perhaps we can contrast some of the things between law and grace. Law is a ministry of condemnation. It condemns me, just as I gave that poor illustration of the speed limit. It condemns me. It shows me that there is failure in me and that I need a savior. Grace is of forgiveness. It gives forgiveness. Law curses, but grace redeems from the curse. Law utterly condemns the best man. Grace freely justifies the worst. Law says, do and live. And grace says, believe and live. Grace says, in fact, it's done. Done in Christ. 
So is there a purposeful law here for us today as Christians? That's the question. He's, Paul is, is bringing before Peter and the other Jews this issue that you've, you've acknowledged that you justified in Christ by faith, yet you're adding this little issue of law. And he's saying the two don't mix, isn't he? Law has no responsibility for the believer today, does it? There is no action of the law. Once it brings us to Christ, there is no, it's fulfilled, it's completed in Christ. The next verse gives us that particular aspect. Look at verse 19. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I, through the law, died to the law that I might live for God. A murderer is caught, brought into the courtroom before the judge. The prosecution is there with the case against him. The case is heard by the jury. The jury comes back with a verdict, guilty. The judge says the consequence of that guilt is death. He stands before the executioner and is put to death. That's the picture here. The law required my death, but by putting me to death, it has no more effect on me. If now, all of a sudden, two days later, here they are, they come back and they say, well, wait a minute, he also stole a car. And he robbed the local 7-Eleven. Well, it's a bit late, isn't it? He's dead. The law has no bearing on him at all. Well, how does that work for us? We generally leave this 19th verse as it stands, and then we go to the next verse, verse 20, 20, and say, I have been crucified with Christ. These two verses go together. How is it that I'm put to death so that the law has no effect on me at all? I am crucified with Christ. Do you see it? Christ bore the penalty for me. It wasn't I that bore the penalty, Christ bore it, but judicially God sees me up there. In fact, the word says here, I have been crucified with Christ. At that very time of his crucifixion there, God saw me in a judicial sense as being hung on that cross with the Lord Jesus. He bore the penalty. He made the payment. He died for me. But in that, I died as well. Christ died not only for my sins, but for who I am by nature. He died for me, the great I, 
the great problem in my life and probably yours too. Because I tend to come off that cross, it seems, so very often. And so the law convicts me. And by the law, I am put to death. But by virtue of that action, I am dead to the law. And the law has no bearing on me whatsoever. Now, on this side of the cross, what happens? We oftentimes become Galatians again. We start applying the law, not for justification, but for sanctification. The law has no effect for sanctification either. We say, well, wait a minute, what is the law? Well, there's the whole law of Moses. There's the ceremonial law. Isn't there? There's the moral law. Now, shouldn't we obey the moral law? How about that? Need to obey the moral law, right? Put ourselves under law again? Is that what the word says? No. And then there's the principle of law. The principle of law is just simply that uh, anything that I'm doing as a requirement to meet, appro meet approval with God. The principle of law. I have to do this in order to meet approval with God. You've already met approval with God. Our works are not now to receive approval, but because we've received approval, we do the works. Not of the law, but of faith. And so on this side of the cross, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith in the Son of God. Faith is dependence upon another. Dependence upon Christ. Now how in a very practical sense, here I am judicially nailed to the cross. I live now in the body, but Christ lives within me. How is it that I am able to live a sanctified life now? Certainly not by virtue of the law, because the law, as I said before, places a demand on us, but gives us no ability by which we can complete that demand and then penalizes us for it. So how? How is it? Well, we're told over and over again, are we not? That when the Lord went up, ascended on high, he sent the Holy Spirit. What is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer? We looked at one of the areas earlier today in the sense of being baptized by one spirit. We all are baptized into one body, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is the unity among believers, diversity, yes, different gifts, different elements in the body, but 
diversity in unity. But what is the additional work of the Spirit? If we go to Ephesians chapter 1, we're given some of that, are we not? That at the time of coming to Christ, the time that we are saved from the penalty of sin, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and the issue of the sin issue is dealt with, we recognize him as having given himself in our stead on the cross. At that very moment, the Spirit of God is given to us, and he indwells us. And unlike in the Old Testament, he indwells us continually. He also is the seal at that very moment, the seal in the believer's life. If you remember the old, some of you aren't old enough to, know, to, <coughs> to have been able to use wax, yet you pour on, a, on an envelope to close a letter and then you put a little signet on it, huh? Yeah, well, you've seen it though, right? Three musketeers and stuff, right? Okay, right, so you've seen that. What does that seal speak of? Well, generally, it's royalty that, that has that seal. It's ownership. That seal speaks of ownership and authority. And so the Holy Spirit is the mark, the seal of ownership that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to another. The Holy Spirit indwells us, as I said. He's the seal, and he's what's called the earnest, the down payment. Well, really, it's much larger than that. He is the guarantee that that salvation that was gained by us through Christ is going to be completed. Remember we talked about salvation as being saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin, and saved from the presence of sin. And God is going to accomplish that, and he guarantees it by giving us the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the guarantee that that which Christ initiated on the cross will be completely achieved in heaven. What a marvelous thing that is. The spirit, the soul, and the body completely saved. The guarantee of it all is the spirit of God. The spirit of God indwells us on a permanent basis, and he seeks to work within us and through us. He is the one that bears righteousness in the life of a believer. We are justified by virtue of the righteousness of God being given to us, one-time act, 
But the work of the Holy Spirit is to, as an on, in an ongoing basis, to make us more like Christ. And so there is the act of making us righteous, and that's an ongoing act. He guarantees, or he's the guarantee that that is going to get accomplished, no matter how slow we may be and recalcitrance we may be here. There is a day coming where we'll be like him, like Christ, but we shall see him as he is. And the Spirit of God is the guarantee that that will be accomplished. Now, this is the work of God in the believer. It's a one-time function. As soon as one comes to Christ, the Spirit of God indwells them. The Spirit of God is made the seal or seals that life, saying, I have authority of it, uh, and it is assigned to Christ, and that he's the guarantee of all that Christ achieved on the cross is going to be fulfilled, but there's one element that is left for us as believers, and that is to be filled by the Holy Spirit. That is not a direct work of God, the time of our salvation. That is our responsibility. Now, what does filling of the Spirit mean? Well, it simply means that we place ourselves under his control. Every believer is to be filled. Now we have to understand that filling is not maturity, not spiritual maturity. Because the believer that has just come to Christ, this is his first day, is to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And he has, the Spirit of God is available to do that. He indwells the individual. What it means that is as the Lord convicts, as the Spirit of God convicts of issues in our life, we then turn them over to him so that they are under his control. Now, for a young believer, that might be just a minuscule. You know, you look at the young believer, he's still he's got a cigarette hanging out of his side of his lips and... Uh, you whatever else, uh, just think of yourself when you were a little younger believer, you know. I mean, so, and you look at him and say, well, gosh, what's happening here? He, he claimed to be a believer, but look at him. Well, the problem is that the Lord has not, by the Spirit, brought conviction yet in those areas. But when he does, do we, in fact, then permit him control in our lives? That's the case. And so it's not a indirect proportion to maturity, but you can't gain spiritual maturity without being filled by the Spirit of God. If you don't turn your life over to his control, there is obviously no maturity or little maturity that comes along the way. And so it is the control of the Holy Spirit where he then works out 
righteousness in our lives. Sanctified living. That's the issue. Many of us, however, tend to say, okay, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, they're mentioned in the Old Testament. The Decalogue is there. And nine of those Ten Commandments are mentioned in the New Testament, are they not? The only one is, that's not is uh, for us uh, is the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath. But the other nine are there. Uh, shouldn't we be following those? on the basis of law. Remember what law is. Right? Law sets a demand. If you're going to keep this, you break one of those elements, you're under judgment. We're, the judgment has been taken care of by the Lord on the cross of Calvary. There is no judgment for us. So is the moral law set aside? Well, no, you know, there were some bright guys that came to the Lord, I think 22nd chapter of, uh, of the book of Matthew. The first, the, the Sadducees tried their little bit about uh, the resurrection. And the Lord, of course, uh, dealt with that issue to their shame. The Pharisees said, well, you know what? How about us? Let's us have a little whack at this, right? And they sent out a lawyer. And the lawyer comes to, him, to the Lord and says, you know, Master, yeah, Master, which is the first, first law? Oh, we're going to catch him here, right? Which is the first law? And the Lord said, Love the Lord God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And here's a second one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know that those two, I hate to call them laws, but those two commands cover all of the Ten Commandments, the Nine Commandments, if you look very closely at the Ten Commandments, other, uh, other than the requirement for the keeping the, the Sabbath, you'll note that they, uh, they deal with issues regarding God and with issues regarding man. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to go and chasing after his wife. And you're not going to jump into his garage and, and steal his tools. Right? Do, you, do you see that? So they cover all, not only do they cover the Ten Commandments, as if it were, those requirements, those commandments that the Lord set forth, covers everything. But the important element here is that you're given power, the Holy Spirit, to live that. And if we fall, there is no penalty for it. The penalty has already been reached. The penalty has already been paid by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Dear Christian, how many times have I caught myself trying to, to uh, be well-pleasing to the Lord and fall flat on my face because it's in the power of self? In the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, we have two men presented for us. Paul presents two men. One is the natural man and the other is the carnal. 
you could write over the, the, the natural man, sin. as the expression of his life. Unsaved, sin. You can write over the, the carnal man. That is one that is saved by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus, redeemed by that precious blood, but lives as a natural man. You can put down what? I. You see, he lives, lives in the I. The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, well, by golly, you know what? I'm going 75. I do. That's Paul describing himself when he was living in the flesh, in the power of the flesh. And I catch myself doing that on a regular basis, do you? Attempting, you see, a carnal man isn't just simply, when, when we say that uh, he's a, a believer that lives as a natural man, I'm not speaking that, of the fact that he li lives as a natural man in every aspect of sin, here, Paul is saying, I'm trying to do good, and I'm trying to keep away from evil. I'm trying to please God in these matters, but I'm doing it in the, in the power of I. And it's to my disaster. The only way that we can do that is by giving the Spirit of God the place in that. In chapter 8, we see the victory. Right? There over the last man, we can put spirit. And in fact, if you go through those two chapters and look for the words sin, I, and spirit, you'll find those three men. There was the victory. The spirit of God working in the life of Paul. And that's the only way that we gain victory in a sanctified life for the Lord. The only way. Now here's a lovely statement that's given here for us. In this latter part of verse 20. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Have you taken that portion of the verse and enjoyed it? What is the, the mo most well-known verse in the Bible? I think most would say John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, there's the breadth of it, the expanse of it, that he gave his only begotten son. Now put it in alongside this verse. I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me, loved me and 
gave himself for me. Oh, the broadness in John 3.16. But how personal is this? The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a wonderful Savior we have. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. We looked at what grace means. For if righteousness comes through the law, then then Christ died in vain. Christ died in vain. Grace, believe and live. Law, do. The requirement of the law, do and live. And it convicts and then takes us to judgment. We are dead to the law. All taken care of by the Lord Jesus. And we are identified with him. I am crucified with Christ that time. There's the old nature. Oh, if we could just keep him on that tree rather than let him down. But judicially, that's where he is. And so now we have the power to live for God by the power of the Spirit of God in us. May that be so, dear Christians. Let us look to the Lord. Our Father, we do bow before thee. Again, in the precious and lovely name of the Lord Jesus, the accomplishment of the cross. Oh, gracious Father, we will delight in them for all of eternity. There we will look upon that one who bears, not scars, but the very wounds, as of a lamb freshly slain, ever and constant a reminder of the cost of our salvation. O blessed God, thy son is the delight of thy bosom, and we might say that he is altogether lovely to us as well. We thank thee, O gracious Father, that the issues of justification been taken care of. Thou art a holy judge, but the requirement was completely made at the cross of Calvary. We thank you that the provision of righteousness for us is ever available through the outworking of the Spirit of God who indwells us. We pray, Father, that in fact we might indeed give ourselves wholly to thee by the Spirit, because the Lord Jesus Christ loved me and gave himself for me. In his blessed name we pray. Amen.